Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. We are on to another episode. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today, we have two guests, Andrew Drazen and Dr. Edmund Hakimi. And let's talk about Andrew first. Andrew is the co-founder and chairman of WellBridge. Andrew has leveraged his business leadership skills and personal family experience with addiction to inspire and create an innovative and patient-first culture. Andrew was instrumental in bringing addiction treatment and addiction research together on a single campus so that scientists and clinicians can work together to advance patient care. Andrew's going to share his personal story of why he wanted to create a space like this. And um, it really comes from his own experience with addiction in his family. So he's going to share that story. And we also have Dr. Edmund Hakimi. Dr. Hakimi is a renowned board-certified internal medicine physician with fellowship training in addiction medicine from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, He received his Bachelor of Science degree from St. John's University in New York with a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. Dr. Hakimi earned his Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine from New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed his internal medicine residency at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. He specializes in treating patients with severe substance use disorders and concurrent psychiatric diagnoses while conducting clinical research to develop novel treatments for these disorders. Dr. Hakimi's goal is to provide exceptional care to those with substance use disorders and wraparound services. Dr. Hakimi on this episode is going to talk about all the latest research in addiction treatment, especially concerning fentanyl and xylosine and how some of their new research is leading to some novel treatments to really get the best possible outcomes for people who are struggling with addiction. Just a lot of knowledge there and a lot of experience. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. I definitely enjoyed the conversation and could even ask a lot more questions if we had more time. So I hope that you get a lot out of this episode as well. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button. All right, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guests today are Andrew Drazen 
and Dr. Edmund Hakimi. And we're going to talk about Wellbridge and we're going to talk about uh, addiction and addiction research. And so I'm excited to jump into this conversation. Let's just have you both briefly introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about you and we'll get into all the work that you're doing. Hi, Dwayne. Uh, my name is Andrew Drazen and thanks for having us today. I'm the original founder of Wellbridge. I started Wellbridge working on this 13 years ago. I'm the uh, chairman of Wellbridge at the present time. I started 13 years ago. I'm not sure you want me to go into my history of Wellbridge at the moment. Would you like me to do that? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Why don't we, Edmund, why don't you jump in and tell us a little about you and, and then we're going to get there because I want to hear that story because I think that's important. Thank you. Hi, Dwayne. Thank you for having us. My name is Edmund Hakimi. I'm the medical director of Wellbridge Addiction Treatment and Research. I've been here since July of 2022. Previously, I was uh, also working here a year prior and as a consultant before I joined while I was doing my training up in Boston and Brigham Women Hospital. Awesome. All right. So we're going to jump in. So let's talk uh, about Wellbridge and, and what's unique about it. But Andrew, I want to hear your story about your motivation to form this place for addiction treatment and addiction research. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to share this. So I grew up in the in the 1960s in a town called Rockville Center on Long Island in Nassau County. And uh, I had two brothers. We were all under the age of 10 years old. And I had a divorced mom raising us. In the 60s, my mom became uh, depressed, being divorced, uh, raising three little children. And in those days, there was very little understanding of addiction. It certainly wasn't considered an illness. Yeah. At yeah. the age at the age of six or seven years old, I started to come home from school and see some very unusual things and experience things like my mom passed out on the floor. My older brother and I used to bring her back to bed. And as time went along, in those days, doctors that she went to see, they used the prescribed amphetamines to get you up in the morning, get the kids off to school, barbiturates to put you to sleep at night and probably mixed with plenty of vodka during the day. At the age of nine years old, I came home from school and my mom was, was dead. She, she died of an overdose of the pills and alcohol. And I was quickly ushered with my brothers to my father's parents, my grandparents, to go live with them. They were wonderful, wonderful people. They were warm, generous, engaged in our welfare. But I must admit, in the five years that we lived with them, my mom's name never came up. Um, this was considered this was considered a, a sin for a mom to do this to her three sons uh, in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, it was rough, and I I took all those early memories of my mom and put them in a shoebox in my closet. I would say for 40 years, I had such stigma and shame attached to what happened to my family, to my youth and never went back. I got married young, still married to the same lovely wife, uh, raised two children. But it wasn't until 13 or 14 years ago, while I had time to volunteer at a local emergency room and taking families to the morgue, that it hit me that this is why how I ended up in the, an emergency room, uh, volunteering and experiencing the horror and tragedy of people overcome by addiction 
that I, I started to run around Long Island with an idea of creating a research-driven treatment facility for addiction and those who suffer and their families. Family was very, very important to me. I, I would imagine, I'm just imagining back in the 60s how, like, you know, the stigma was so huge around addiction. Like, you just don't talk about it. There's there's something horribly morally wrong. It's a moral failing. And then you had that whole experience as a kid and had to lock that all away. I mean, oh, my gosh, I can I can see why you'd want to to do this. Yeah, that was the motivation Certainly. And to build a beautiful facility from the ground up that was welcoming to those who struggle and their loved ones to provide dignity, hope, and respect to those who suffer with substance use disorder. And if you had the opportunity to see Wellbridge online on our website or visit, from the front door to the back, it's just uplifting. And patients are so grateful to come to a facility that treats them with respect and hope and caring for them in a setting like this, which is kind of uncommon yeah. in the addiction space. Yeah, with compassion and kindness, because all that shame keeps uh, addiction in the shadows. You, you can't get help if you can't find a place that can, can be there for you and to support you through it. That's an amazing story, you know, a lot of tragedy, but it, it sounds like at the same time, turning that into to something more, something better. Yeah, well, it's for me. It's uh, I'm in my 60s now. It's for me. It's almost a legacy, and and to see uh, all the patients that we're helping every day here, I'm grateful that we got it all done. I must share with you that I started it 13 years ago. I had acquaintances and friendships with some very well-known developers on Long Island, probably the largest developers. I wasn't a kid anymore. I asked how long would it take to get going, and they said, "You mean like a shovel on the ground?" And I said, "Whatever you guys call it," because I wasn't a developer. And uh, they said, well, probably a year or two the most. It took eight years, eight years with this wow. town to get a building permit. And uh, it was political. It wasn't the townspeople at all. It was just the politics of the local political structure. And we broke ground in 2018 after eight years of trying. And then we opened our doors in the height of COVID in 2020. And I must share with you that Congregant living was not high on anybody's list with strangers during COVID. So yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a tough tough year when we opened our doors up. But it sounds like, like you said, the the the, the passion to provide this care fueled by your own experience of this tragedy of addiction just sounds like it just pushed you forward in into this to make that happen to be able to create this kind of space. The next question I want to ask is bringing in that research part of it and combining those two things, having an addiction treatment center with a research facility. Yes. Uh, so way back, I, I, you know, I wasn't a healthcare executive. I wasn't from the healthcare world. I studied a lot. I had so many years to study every day to learn about addiction, the addiction space, treatment for those who suffer. I could never understand how the addiction space was unlike other illnesses, like cancer, like diabetes, like heart disease, where um, it was common for a scientist or a researcher to possibly walk down the hall and collaborate with a clinician about a patient's care. 
uh, like it's done at Sloan Kettering or other great facilities around the, the country and the world, never has been done really, rarely in the addiction space, if, if, if ever. And I didn't understand that. So I wanted to build yeah, an addiction yeah. research center right on the same campus with uh, patients that are being treated. And that, that was always the vision of what we tried to create here. Yeah. To, I, in a way, I just connected back to your story of your your mom and that she didn't have that opportunity. That wasn't there. It was just a moral thing that we're not going to talk about. We're right. not going to look at. We're not going to say anything. And, you know, bringing research to it is bringing the light to it, is talking about it, is discussing it. It's it's the complete opposite of that. I think that's I, I think I just I think that's that's awesome. And that, that's so great. And just by doing that breaking the stigma and so people can get help. So Dr. Akimi, let's bring you into this conversation a little bit and <clears throat> your part in this in making Wellbridge what it is and and the research perspective. So tell us a little bit about you and and let's get into that. Absolutely. So I've been in a field from probably 9 10 years ago in different capacities. I have to start out, first of all, I'm a person in long-term recovery myself from years and years ago. And through my own journey of noticing of the problems that's going on in my own life, trying to get care from what was available out there. And this is, you know, obviously by no means, you know, 1960s, but a lot more recent than that. However, the system of care was not similar, like Andy said, to any other models of, of medicine. Uh, most of the places that I went to, it was very old-fashioned based on abstinence model. As we know, that goes back to 1930s, 1940s, with little to no innovation in this field. And this is one of the fields of medicine where it affects so many people, and not just affecting them, it affects their family as a whole. So it affects a significant portion of the population. Yeah. Through that journey and realizing the barriers to care, the lack of research and care, the lack of implementing evidence base in the care of these patients, the respect for the patient, not the stigma that the patients experience while they're getting their treatment. Through the process of my own journey, I realized that this is something that I wanted to devote my life to and, and kind of change the system as a whole. Since then, I've been fortunate enough to collaborate with different organizations and have led some great teams. I have been able to help start Long Island's Nassau County's first addiction mobile recovery unit. So that's pretty much a low barrier, low threshold clinic bringing addiction care to low income communities with low access to care and be able to bring a mobile unit. It was set up in like a 40-foot RV, and that RV would go to, you know, probation, parole offices, to high-hit communities, to underserved areas, and really bring care to them. I've gone through different different capacities, which I'm, I'm just not going to go through right now. And then when Andy, I'm, Andy and I met, our vision really was shared in bringing a respectful, evidence-based care to patients and really combine that with research, not only to be able to implement the research that's been done already and actually implement them into practice, but also come up with new methods uh, of treatment that could really help people and measure those outcomes and make sure what works and then evolve from there. Right. So you can get accurate information of what is actually helping clients. So let's talk a little bit of like when you say evidence-based, 
What does that mean in, in addiction treatment? Great, thanks. Um, that's a great question. So evidence-based treatment is pretty much the same across the board in a healthcare field, right? So if I am a cardiologist and I want to prescribe medications to people or do some sort of cardiothoracic surgeries, there are everything that we do in medicine, it's based on looking at clinical trials, look at evidence to see what helps people short-term, long-term, what reduces mortality, what improves quality of life. And then based on the most recent updated data, we implement treatment for patients. However, in the addiction field, because of the stigma, we don't do a lot of that. For the longest time, the consensus in the addiction treatment field has been abstinence model, right? right? You're using substances, it has adverse effects on your life, you must stop, mm -hmm. just stop. Right. Or the slogan from the aid is just say no. Mm -hmm. And if it was only that simple and getting this really complicated medical condition or medical disorder into just say no. Right. So, you know, we never say that to anybody else in the healthcare field. Right. If somebody comes in with heart failure, we not we don't tell them just say no to potato chips and fries. Right. Or just say no to if someone comes with diabetes, just say no to cake and sugary beverages. Right? We actually treat them. We treat them with dignity. Yes, you have a medical model. We're going to start you on medication that's going to help you. We're also going to provide diabetic education for you so you know what to eat and what not to eat. We're going to you know, um, implement some exercise 30 minutes a day for five days a week. And all this information that we give these patients comes from studies. They have studied people and they've determined what is the right level of exercise, what is the right level of caloric intake, what is the right medications that, that prevents you know, adverse events from from the disorder. However, when it comes to substance use, our go-to is just stop, which doesn't doesn't necessarily work for people. Right. It's just, yeah, just stop. Don't do it. And I, I think that comes out of, like you said earlier, what Andrew was saying in the 60s, no one was talking about it. It was this moral failing. Mm -hmm. And it had nothing to do with our body, our, our brain chemicals, our hormones, our life events. Right. That's absolutely correct. Right? And although, so I, this is, this is what I kind of want to portray. So the treatment of substance use disorder is definitely a spectrum. It goes from harm reduction, right? Where is supervised injection sites and all that stuff all the way through abstinence. All of those are good treatment, right? So the abstinence model is the ultimate the best, right? That is, that is the go-to fully on the other side of the spectrum. However, it's not achievable for many people. And what has come from the data is that that has about a 95% failure rate. Wow. So if I, again, I'm going to go back to the cardiologist example. So if I'm a cardiologist and I prescribe something from one of my patients and he has a 95% failure rate, in weeks or months, I'll be pulled in front of a jury asking me, hey, Dr. Akimi, why did you prescribe something to your patient for their heart condition, knowing that it had a 95% failure rate? However, when it comes to substance use, that is the goal. So my mission has always been, yes, that is maybe the goal for some people, and that's respectable, that we, we can help them achieve that. However, we have to educate the public, educate the patients, set up a system of treatment that supports the full array and the full spectrum of treatment. 
Right. No, that makes a lot of sense that this is much more nuanced than just, uh, you know, abstinence or using. There's there's a whole spectrum in there. What, one of the questions that's coming to my mind is asking about how do we measure that outcome when we say failure rate? What does that actually mean? You know, how do we measure that? Because it's, it's also about like, uh, I guess, life satisfaction, feeling good in your life, maybe lack of depressive symptoms or lack of anxiety or yeah, how do you measure that, I guess, is my question. So that goes to the design of the study, that whatever they determine is a primary outcome for a study. So, for example, for somebody, that design of a study, like one of the studies that's out, the 95% failure rate, since we brought that up, the design of the study was um, discontinuation of treatment. Right, okay. Right, so, you know, they, they follow people for one month, and at the one month is how many people are still engaged, how many people are not. Right. So they're not no longer getting any kind of support. They're no longer getting help. Mm-hmm. They're going back to that old lifestyle that probably wasn't bringing them much life satisfaction. Correct. Or it can be, you know, in a different study design, it can be a return to use or relapse. So it would be, you know, you start person on buprenorphine, which is, you know, Suboxone, the brand name or abstinence model, and you compare them. And one of the old studies that was based out of Europe, this is years ago, this is one of the original studies of, of buprenorphine. So it's buprenorphine. I'm just going to say Suboxone because it's more well-known. I just use the brand name here, versus abstinence. And it showed that within 30 days, 95% of the people had returned to use versus 70% of people on buprenorphine still engaged in treatment. Right, right. What about when when you start to put all this together... And you start to have, you know, you're treating individuals, but you're also looking at what is effective for them. How are you incorporating that into WellBridge's model to be able to like pull those things? Do you have like multiple studies going or or are you also studying like different treatment options? Like does this type of treatment, medical treatment maybe, but also, you know, cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavior or you know, studying these different things, how do you start to put that together to pull these two pieces together? Absolutely. So one of the main things that attracted me to come to Wellbridge was this research model. So we have, the the model of Wellbridge is everything that happens here from the medical department, from the clinical department, all the therapies that put in place, it has all gone through rigorous evaluation, but our evidence-based track. So nothing we implement here that we just thought it'd be fun to do, right? So it's, it's all based on, let's go look at the data, this thing we're going to implement. Has this shown to be effective? Has this shown to be to improve outcomes or decrease mortality for patients? And then we implement it. On the research end, we have two different types of research that's going on here. So one type is translational medicine. And that's pretty much helping to bring in research that's already been done and implemented into a population and then measuring outcomes, right? So unfortunately, there is always a lot of research being done, but it just sits on a shelf somewhere and it never gets implemented, right? Even though it has had good outcome, just because it, it takes time and energy for everybody to go from what they were doing until, you know, in, into new models. So that's the translational. And then we have the clinical research that, that goes on. And that's mainly towards therapeutics, for instance. In the age of fentanyl, because 
fentanyl takes a long time to leave the body just because of the decreased renal clearance. So it, it takes a long time for the kidneys to get rid of it. And it's also because it's lipophilic, so it's absorbed into the fat cells rather than just into the into the blood, similar to marijuana. It stays in a, in a body much longer. So if somebody uses high doses of fentanyl over a long period of time, they have significant amount of fentanyl reserve on their body. So their body becomes kind of like um like a fentanyl patch, right? And they they wow, have that wow. fentanyl that leaches out of these adipose cells or or the fat cells through the body for a long time. One thing that that has complicated, which has made treatment a little difficult, is for patients who opt to be on Suboxone. Because Suboxone it is a partial agonist and not a full agonist like other OPS like fentanyl, if it's given too early in the course of treatment, can put people into precipitated withdrawal. So that's why people generally have to wait for a certain period of time. You know, back in the day when it was just opiates and heroin, no fentanyl system. They used to tell people, you know, wait eight to 12 hours from the last dose, experience some withdrawal symptoms, and then take a suboxone. And if you would have taken it earlier, it would put you into precipitated withdrawal, which, which just means that it worsens your real withdrawal. With fentanyl, that could take five to seven days until a person is ready to even receive that, that first dose of fentanyl. So there's tremendous research uh, that's going on on looking at what is the right time, what is the right methodology. You know, there's different ways. There's low-dose initiation, high-dose initiation, low-dose, high-dose initiation. There, there are different methods. And they all have been shown good outcomes when, um, for example, I give an example because I, I, I currently work there at Brigham and Women's. We implemented a low-dose protocol we, where we were able to get people on a full dose of Suboxone within like three to four days. At Walbridge, we have been able to implement a new methodology of, of starting people on low-dose uh, Suboxone. And with our current model, which was just implemented, I would say about two and a half, three months ago, we are able to get people from last dose of fentanyl to full dose of Suboxone within 48 hours with a with low risk of precipitated withdrawal. So, you know, the, the, the clinical research of it is what can we do to change this to help people get on their, their life-saving medications faster with the least amount of complications? Because we know that these medications lead to better outcomes, lower rates of returning to use, lower mortality rates from overdoses. So how do we get them to the medication faster? Because a lot of patients also, because of the severe withdrawals until they're ready to get a suboxone, they might leave treatment early, which implements going returning back to use, and then you know all those negative outcomes. So we implement this brand new protocol, and then we collect data, and then we bank these data, and then we do maybe like a pre-post analysis or a case series or things like that, and then show that this new methodology might or might not work, because you know something not working is still good data for people, right? So right, you know, yeah, you, you this, know this is this isn't effective. This you is know, what we do thought. This. <laughs> yeah, what we thought might be might work isn't actually working. Yeah, we want to know that exactly, or it might work and it'd be super beneficial. So then, which I can tell you right now, based on the sample size that we have, it, it's been very successful. So then, and then we put this and and, and publish it in a, in a journal, and then other people can learn about it and and do it and disseminate it. That's amazing to be able to have that data, to collect that data, to have the controls to be able to collect that data. Because, you know, even in my experience in working in the addiction field for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, treatment centers were going on just 
hunches of what might work for somebody, some kind of cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavior therapy, and and not really understanding all of these underlying dynamics. And so to be able to bring the data to it and really see it is pretty amazing. So I, I want to jump back to Andrew. I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> Andrew, as you're listening to him talk about this and seeing that vision take place, I'm just wondering, like, your reaction to that, like, to say, hey, we're doing really good research here. Well, we're doing great work. I'm so grateful Dr. Hakimi joined our team, you know, full-time from up at Harvard, where his fellowship was uh, was occurring a year ago, uh, last August, I guess. We're doing great work. We're helping so many. And uh, it's really pointing towards individualized care, that what might be right for you, Duane, might not be right for me. And so we are yeah. collecting the data and, and restructuring programs to focus on what might work for you. And with that in mind, WellBridge is truly a holistic program. We offer so many activities and options to engage the mind away from substances, whether it be fitness. We have a an amazing gym. We have two uh, pools here. We have art. We have crafts. We have art. We have dance movement. We have yoga. We have so many things. And you'd be amazed. People who haven't gone to a job in years are now getting up at 7 a.m. to go to the gym, to go to a yoga class to go to a creative arts session, to create some kind of sculpture, to go to a dance movement a therapy session. Uh, these are all things that are offered here. And with the better weather coming out now, there'll be excursions for bicycle rides away from Welbridge. We have an outside basketball court. We have volleyball. We have so many things. And to see the patients getting well and getting healthy in a short time that they're here, and it is a relatively short time, uh, it's it's truly remarkable, and I'm just blessed that this has all come to to fruition after so many years of struggling and to get it built, that it all all came to pass, and and it's, and it's here now, and we're we're helping so many. Yeah, and and I love that you say individualized. I know just from my own experience working in the field, we had an IOP program that we did for behavioral addictions, and at the end. I would do these exit surveys, and, and by far this is not a rigid study. And I, I would ask them like, what was what part of our program was most effective for you, and and what you know didn't help you? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'm going to you know kind of squeeze it down and get rid of the stuff that doesn't work. And and I, I found out what happened is is a lot of people. One person would say this was the most impactful part of the the program for me, and then another person was like. Oh, this this part of the program didn't I didn't even get anything out of that. And I just kind of said, you know, everybody has their own story and you, you gotta you gotta do it in this individual way to to help people find what works for them. Yeah, for sure. And we do that here. I think our patients are really appreciating the approach. You know, I walk the halls every day. I I, I make it a point to talk to patients that I see here. By the most part, they're also grateful to have the opportunity to come here. You know, we are an insurance-driven model. So when I say that, we're, we're, we're funded by managed care. Contracts that we have with the largest payers, whether it be United Healthcare or Blue Cross or Cigna or Aetna. But the reaction I'm getting from patients is that they, they make a relatively small copay on their plan to come here. And the rest is picked up by insurance and they say to me, you know, I've been to five rehabs. I've been to 10 rehabs over the last 30 years. Yeah, I, wish yeah. I, had the, I wish I had the opportunity to come here first. My life would have been different. And that's what's so gripping. And, 
And in, in, in a way, it's so great. I'm so gratified to hear something like that because they finally got it. They got to a place that can really help them at any stage in their life. But certainly the older ones, you know, they want to make a, make a change before it's too late. And so and that's, that's really great to hear and great to see. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a powerful story and, and powerful to to see when people get really good treatment and and they finally make that leap to wellness, you know, and and you can see them thrive. I'm also wondering in doing this research, what kind of and this might be for you, Edmund, what are you seeing with the opioid epidemic? You were talking about fentanyl, but there's a lot of other synthetic drugs out there that are coming out and. And I'm wondering just kind of what you're seeing in your research and, and what you see ahead. Yeah, great question. So one of the the newest epidemic is xylazine. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure you've heard of it. It was kind of on a on a down low what was going on with xylazine. You know, it started we started seeing it many years ago, starting out in Puerto Rico, and then it got really bad in Puerto Rico, and then we started seeing it scatterly in the United States. Most recently the biggest epidemic in Pennsylvania, where I think the opiate supply was about 80 or 90% contaminated with xylazine. Just to give you the background, xylazine is a animal tranquilizer. So they use it for anesthesia for in veterinarian care. It was the original people that came up with xylazine actually applied for FDA approval for blood pressure medication. It was supposed to be blood pressure medication for humans. It's very similar to clonidine in, in the way it works. However, it never got approved because it was highly sedating. It has great central nervous system suppressant behaviors to it. So it was never approved for human use. However, they, they reformulated it and got it approved as a, a sedative for, for animals, right? So in veterinarian care, it's used a lot doing surgeries, procedures, things like that, you know, which, which is, it has a place for sure. However, it, it found its way to the opiate drug supply. And uh, now we're seeing a tremendous amount in New York. We, we see it, you know, it has been tested and found in 48 states so far. So it's everywhere. And people are seeking it because what it does is it does two things. One, it potentiates the, the effectiveness of the opiates and it elongates the duration of its effect. So fentanyl is a very short-acting opiate. As people start using it, they have to use it very frequently because it kind of goes through that peak and trough really rapidly. So addition of the xylazine into the drug, it makes it more effective and, and longer lasts, and so they don't have to they don't have to use that often, which is very attractive for people who right. Use yeah, that makes sense. So now, but it has significant adverse effects. It, it, it causes sores that are very hard to heal. Many people are getting hospitalized because of it. There's a lot of infections that, that comes because it is uh, open sores on people's bodies. And we have no effective method of testing for it. So there's no, you know, like we have like a fentanyl testing strips. We don't have that yet. I know there's some companies that are working on it. To do a urine, urine drug screen, only very, very few laboratories offer testing for it, which takes five to seven days to resolve, which at that point, it's the person has kind of gone through the treatment. And it has become kind of difficult in, in the general population with, with misunderstanding of people who overdose and Narcan. And because it works differently, 
and, and there's something I, I kind of want to put out because this has been a this has been an issue and I'm kind of on a, a, a mission to bring this out to, to public's eye. So if somebody overdoses and you give them Narcan and they don't respond because of the xylazine that's in there because it suppresses the central nervous system, however, xylazine doesn't suppress the breathing properties the way fentanyl does. And these people die of overdose because they can't breathe, so they can't oxygenate their brain or the heart, and then the person dies. Narcan still, or naloxone, still reverses the fentanyl part. So the person may remain sedated, looking like they never reversed the overdose. However, they start breathing. So I know there's statements being put out there by different senators and different public figures that, you know, the uh, naloxone is no longer effective against uh, overdoses because of xylazine. It's, It's not true. Oh, that's good information to know. That's that's very important. So you you might, if someone's uh, you think somebody's ODing, you still need to give them that Narcan yeah. so that they can they can still breathe, and Correct. then and then um, the xylazine will have to move out of their system. But it's it's longer lasting, so the xylazine stays in their system longer and has longer effects. Is that correct? correct. Yeah. So xylazine is suppresses the central nervous system, but doesn't really affect the breathing pattern. Fentanyl does both, right? It suppresses the central nervous system and in two different methods by the, 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 some of the function in the brainstem, it decreases the, uh, the drive for the person to breathe. And in some cases, it causes what's called a wooden chest syndrome, where it just stiffens the ribcage so the person cannot breathe. So that reduced drive to breathe and the wooden chest syndrome is reversed by naloxone or Narcan. However, the person might continue to remain sedated, but that's okay because they can be sedated and still be alive, whereas the fentanyl prevented the breathing, which can cause death or you know significant brain damage if it goes on for longer and so on and so forth because of the hypoxemia, hypoxemia that's, that's occurring. So I would say give the Narcan monitor for breathing. If the person is breathing, then... At least you've done that job, and obviously, you know, call nine one one and then get and get the authorities involved. And the, I mean, the paramedics and, and everybody else involved to get the person to the hospital and get the care. But don't not use Narcan because you think there might be xylazine, or give two doses of Narcan and the person is still not responding and think what you did didn't work. Right. And are you seeing? And I don't know if this is in your data or not, but is this this these these kind of drug cocktails that they're creating with all these new synthetic drugs are are they becoming even more addictive or even harder for clients to get recovery i don't know if you have the data on that yet but i'm just wondering what you're seeing anecdotally yeah um i mean it doesn't get more more addictive than fentanyl so that's i guess in in all the bad news that's the good news right but all, all the agents that they are bulking up the supplies with is just to improve the effects of fentanyl for the person who wants to use the substance. So a lot of these substances are cut with mainly diphenhydramine or Benadryl, right? Because it has like a relaxing sedative property. So they kind of mix that in there, right? Because back in the day, like let's, let's say one gram of heroin used to look like a certain amount. Now you need a very sig- small, significant portion of that for the same effect. So now you have to add bulking agent to make it be a full gram, right? So they add all these mix of cocktails. So, you know, there, there are great websites 
where they test, this is federal websites that they test the drug supply in every area and they give a breakdown, you know, diphenhydramine, different formulation of fentanyl, carfentanyl, in, in, even in some of them, there's benzodiazepines in some of them. It, it, it's like a soup, right, that, that, they, that they make and, and send out. So I don't know if it's worsening the epidemic, but it's definitely because the drug supply now is all fentanyl is definitely worsening the mortality from it. So, for example, there is data that shows the number of people that are using substances are not more now. However, the mortality rate from the substances are significantly higher. So the same number of people using, but a significant portion of them are unfortunately dying because of the potency of the drugs. Yeah, it's it's such a tragedy. And so many young people, too, you know, who you know, how now have such easy access to some of these drugs that they, you know, they don't even know what they're getting. But the data is distorted. Uh, if you look at all the lives being saved by Narcan, and now it's going to be available at retail like CVS and other stores, yeah. it's going to be so impactful to save so many more lives. But so people are, are thinking that the epidemic is declining. It really isn't. It is not. Uh, without Narcan, the numbers would be way up. So, so it's, it's still there. It's still there. What are, you know, in, in doing your research, just wondering what are some of the maybe more cutting edge modalities that are coming out that are, are really helping that you're seeing or that you're pursuing to, to, to see if you can, we can help with this epidemic. We can help with addiction, bringing lives back. Yep. Great question. So there is an addiction field as a whole there's a ton of cool research that are coming out in different therapeutics for example there is um you know there's a first formulation of extended release buprenorphine or supplicate brand name that's been out for a while now and and that's been really really helpful to have for patients it's you know the the outcomes of the extended release are proven to be significantly better than the sublingual there's patients that have Issues with compliance and taking medications every day or every or a few times a day who do much better on it. Once a month? Once a month. Injection. Correct. Well, once it's a, a month injection. And so that, month that injection. oh my gosh, that would be so incredible, incredibly helpful to be able to have that. That's that's amazing. Yeah. We already have that. We already prescribed that. So it, it came out, it came out, we'll say about a couple of years ago. And it's been very, very helpful. We offer that here. So, you know, they, they're on Suboxone for about seven days as long as they tolerate it. They receive an extended release, which is done every four weeks to every 30 days. There is no peak and trough, so they don't wake up in some withdrawal. Now they have to take their suboxone sublingually. It just keeps a steady state in their serum. So they, they, they just sit at, you know, no craving or little craving, things like that. And because it has, at, at those levels, it has such high affinities for their opiate receptors and because people cannot not take it because it's already in their system, it's also very good at overdose prevention. Because even if they use on top of it, they have no available receptors for the fentanyl to attach to cause an overdose. Right, so it, right. it, it's been significantly helpful. There's another one coming out. There's another extended release buprenorphine formulation coming out, which is a weekly. The advantage that it gives is that it comes in different strengths. You know, extended, the original sublocate, it comes in only two different strengths. This new one comes in more strength, more compatible with sublingual dosing. So that's good, but it's a weekly dose. 
And there is research going on on that, on that weekly extended release buprenorphine formulation to start people right. Like if they took a fentanyl right after if they come to a hospital or a treatment facility, we don't have to go through all this like low dosing or high dosing or waiting three days or seven days to get them on a low, you know, appropriate dose. You could just give them the shot right there. And because it takes time to build into the system, it kind of low doses itself into the system and has been shown to be in some studies that's, that's been effective. So that's some of the cool stuff that's going on in it field as a whole. And that's awesome because if they have that, then they can do the other stuff like rebuilding their life. If they're not totally overwhelmed with cravings, they can do all the other stuff of of repair, making meaningful relationships, building uh, meaningful things in the, in their life that then builds more resiliency in their system to keep living the life that is meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. Correct. Because addiction is a biopsychosocial spiritual disease, right? So, yeah. and it's very hard for a lot of patients. I know we talk a lot about opiates, but even with alcohol use or benzo use disorder, you know, by the time patients come to me, they're already very severe substance use disorder, right? So they, you know, they've gone through different modalities, different providers, different, different therapeutics, and that failed. And that's how they kind of come in front of us. So, you know, they have significant adverse effects in their life, relationships, school, achievements, all of that's still in place, right? So when a person is taken off a substance, they're not ready right away. Like they have so much craving and that drive, you know, they've been using substances for years and years and years. And that's what they know. That's the life that they live, right? That that compulsion, that obsession with use. It doesn't just go out the door, right? By like a few days of treatment. So absolutely medications help to subdue some of those effects. So now those obsessions and compulsions, the withdrawal symptoms, the cravings, all this stuff you mentioned is at bayside. It's it's controlled. So now I can go and focus on my school. I can build some of those relationships. I can, you know, um, participate in some of the community activities to, to be the person I want to be. And then if, abstinence is really the goal, then you could continue having that conversation with a provider and be like, once the life is good and, you know, you have every, all the foundations put into place, then you can have that conversation. Okay, you know what? I want to kind of live a life without medication. How do I come off of it? And then you can gradually taper as an outpatient when all the other aspects of the substance use has been then controlled. Yeah, with all the support around you to have that resiliency to to get there. And I think all of us in our life, we need we need support. Everything's easier with support from others, and, and we definitely need that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I I want to thank you both for coming on. Be, before we wrap up, I know we're a little over our time. I said thirty minutes, and we're at forty six minutes. But this is such an interesting conversation, and I and I love mm-hmm. I love when people are doing research and and really trying to to understand it because that's where we're we're going to help the most people. But I always like to ask one question before we go with my guests, mm-hmm. and I'll give you each a chance to ask. If if someone out there maybe is is struggling, has a family member that's struggling, and you could say one thing to them, one message, what would it be? And I'll, I'll start with you, Andrea. I'll put you on the spot. We can help. We can help. We can help. We can provide uh, care. We can provide hope. We can provide dignity and respect where you probably never received that while you're in your throes of addiction. And we can provide hope to you and, and we can provide, we can help. We can help reverse your life. We can re- help you have a, a meaningful life and provide you the tools that would, the tools when you leave here to have a sustainable life. Awesome. All right, Edmund, 
What about you? What would you want to say? I'll keep it short. Recovery is possible. Recovery is possible. I love it. All right. How, how can people find out more information about you guys? Where can they go? So they can uh, they can go on wellbridge.org and all of our information, our contacts, how to get in, uh, read about what we do. Everything can be found on that website. Awesome. And I will put all of that in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Thank you both for doing what you're doing. And, and Andrew, thank you for not giving up on your on your vision and, thank you. and doing it, yeah. even though it, it took forever. But uh, <laughs> it's it's a really good thing. It's really awesome for both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks for uh, having us on the show today. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for everything you do in the addiction space. You got it. Definitely. Thank you, Dwayne. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and click subscribe in whatever podcast app you use. And check us out on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.